Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Jordana Osban, here with my friend Echad Ruta and Gordon. Our daf today, Masachi Kiddushin, daf Mem Tet, page 49. Well, this daf basically continues with the discussion of Kiddushin that is done out tonight, right? The, the, the husband basically, you know, says that, you know, we have Kiddushin, or the man says we have Kiddushin, if this is true about me. Um, and then the question becomes, if that wasn't true or that condition isn't met, is that considered to be a valid kedushin? Um, and so they basically go through a variety of cases uh, that deal with this type of topic. Um, when I'm going to read one section here from the top and then talk a little bit about what you know what continues to go on this stuff outside. So the Gemara wants to continue to analyze our Mishnah, and it says, Amar Ula, Machloka B'Shevach Mamon. This machlokas that we had in our Mishnah between the Tanakhama and Rabbi Shimon, okay, it has to do with um, whether or not uh, it is to a monetary advantage. In other words, the Mishnah discussed cases where the, the man said, I'm going to give you this, and instead gave something else. And so the question becomes whether or not that is actually, um, or the, the woman said, I want this for the Kedushin, and the, the man gives something different. The Tanakama feels that that has to actually be a followed instruction because that was the condition of the Kedushin. Rabbi Shimon says that usually, especially if it's a more valuable item, that, you know, basically the woman would be willing to accept it. So Ula is basically saying this is what the Machlokas is about. It's, it's about when there's a monetary advantage. So that, you know, the Tanakama is saying even if there's a monetary advantage, if it doesn't fill the condition or what the woman set forth is what she was willing to accept for Kedushin, it's not valid. Whereas Rabbi Shimon says, nope, it is valid because it was it, it was more valuable for her. But when it comes to matters of lineage, Right, Everybody agrees that she would not be mikudeshet, and what's the reason? My taima misana derav lo because people would say for themselves, and they have an expression here: "I do not need a shoe that is too big for my foot." Um, and so that, in other words, uh, uh, so what exactly does this mean? Right, we have to understand this. So uh, some of them in Farshim explain um, that um, a woman would maybe be worried. That you know her, that her husband, uh, who is let's say of a more of a better lineage, right? Like let's say they found out, you know, a better lineage that will consider himself better than her and not treat her nicely, right? That that's what the fear is, and so what Ula basically is saying is is that you can't have a mistake when it comes to Yehusin, when it comes to lineage that are in the woman's advantage, because even if the husband turns out to be let's say having a better uh, better yichus than her, um, then then it may be that the woman didn't want to marry somebody of a better yichus than her. It may be that it what that the woman wanted to marry somebody that you know was of uh, was of a lesser or, or of an equal yichus to her because she didn't want to marry somebody who was like sort of considered to be it better than her, which is kind of interesting. Um, and that would be why Rabbi Shimon would say that it would, um, uh, you know, and that would be. Uh, what, uh, you know, that could be what the, uh, you know, that could be a little bit what they're discussing here. So Ula qualifies Rabbi Shimon's opinion here. And he says the following, Tananami hachi, right, we learned in Ebrisa, moda Rabbi Shimon im Rabbi Shimon agrees, right, that if he misled her when it comes to yochasim, she's not, um, she's not mikudeshet. And how does, it, right? And, and, and so we have a Ebrisa that says it straightforward. So our Mishnah that we're still discussing, right, 
The, the issue is, is about the Tanakhama says it's not valid. Rabbi Shimon says it is valid because when it comes to money, Rabbi Shimon is basically saying, okay, it's to her advantage. She got something more valuable. But here this Bryce is saying when it comes to lineage issues, there may have been a real reason why she didn't want to marry somebody who was, let's say, considered to be like of a higher lineage, right? He says he's a levy, but turns out he's a Kohen. That would sort of be the example. And uh, Rabbi Shimon there would say, yeah, like that's something that she may not have wanted. That There's no advantage to that almost in a way. Like, so he would agree that in that case, there would not be Mikudeshet. Um, they go on to say here, right? Um, Rav Ashi, so Rav Ashi says, Matnina Namidake, right? We, we don't even need to bring a brisa. The, the Mishnah actually supports this as well, Diktani. And this is going to be the, nec- the Mishnah that we're going to see on the bottom of the next page that Anne's going to read. Almanat Shani Kohen Venimsa Levi. Levi Venimsa Kohen, right? So here we have cases where he says he's a Kohen and he finds it to be a Levi. Or he says he's a Levi and he turns out to be a, a Kohen. Natin, he says that he was a Natin. So remember, Natin was these descendants of the Givonim who made this like sort of... Uh, a peace treaty with Yehoshua that uh, they were not actually a member of the seven uh, uh, nations of Canaan, but they actually were. So Yehoshua, you know, so they should have been actually destroyed and kicked out of the land. Yehoshua upheld it, um, but he said that they would sort of be the woodcutters and the water uh, carriers for the Beit HaMikdash. Um, and um that's why they were called Natin, because it means that they were like, they were appointed. Um, so he's saying if they're, so they kind of were like quasi-Jewish. Benim Sam Mamzer, but he turned out to be a Mamzer. Mamzer Benim Sam Natin, right, said he was a Mamzer, but turned out to be a Natin. Below Palig Rabbi Shimon, we see in the Mishnah, there's no record there of Rabbi Shimon actually arguing. And since the conclusion of that Mishnah that we're going to see in the next page, says, Ahmed Bet says, uh, you know, it shows that Rabbi Shimon didn't agree with that. They're going to say, okay, maybe you can't make that, you know, maybe you can't come to that conclusion. So Mar Barav Ashi, again, is that his son, challenges him and says, Eladiktani, right? Okay, but then how can you explain this part of the Mishnah? Right? I'm, the, I'm getting married to this, you know, we're going to have this Kedushin, but I'm telling you I have a daughter or I have a a, a maidservant, lo, and he doesn't, almanat lo, right, on the condition, or he says, I, on the condition that I don't have a daughter or a maidservant, and he does, now that is a, a, a monetary advantage, it's a monetary mistake, okay, and the mission doesn't mention that Rabbi Shimon actually disagrees, so how can Ula make this dis- distinction, right, how can we say they don't disagree, Ella palig beresha, so you have to say that Rabbi Shimon agrees with the first part of the Mishnah, right? The case where a rich man who claims he, uh, a rich man who claims he's poor, or a man promises a silver coin and gives a gold one, buhu adin And also in the second part, right, where the man says that he claims he doesn't have a maidservant, where he does have one, hachanami, right? Here too, when it comes to things about about yichus, about lineage. Rabbi Shimon must argue with the first part of the Mishnah um, and um, also must argue with the second part, right, when there were mistakes made here. So in other words, what he's trying to say is, is that because this Mishnah includes some things that are monetary, it doesn't necessarily mean that Rabbi Shimon doesn't disagree. Maybe then in all cases where there's a mistake made, he disagrees. The Gemara is going to reject this and say, Hachi hashta, is this really a comparison? Hatam idi v'idi, right? When it comes to the case of a daughter or maid service, 
okay, you know, there's some, it could be considered a good argument, right? Both this, right? The part of the Mishnah that deals with the rich man who claims to be poor and this part, the second part, which deals with the man who claims he has no maid service, it, it, there's an, it's Shavach Mamon, there's an advantage to, it, there's a monetary advantage. Pali Beresha Vuhu Hadin, Besefa, um, but when it comes to the end, right, so we could say that Rabbi Shimon argues in the first part and also in the second part, but here where the Mishnah has cases of an advantage with lineage, right, somebody says he's a lady and he's actually a Kohen, um, right, if it was true that Rabbi Shimon argued there too, the Mishnah should have said it. So because the Mishnah doesn't say it explicitly, we have to say that Rabbi Shimon actually agrees with the Tanakhama. Now, you know, some of this may have to do with how the, the, the Mishnah is actually split up, right? Because that that part about the maidservant, um, you know, is going to appear, um, it, it, it appears, uh, you know, it appears later on. Um, and so I think that's what makes it a little bit confusing because you have a list of Yechusin. You're going to see the Mishnah when Anne reads it. And then you have this case of the monetary case. It, it seems to be that some of the cases are out of order. So I think that becomes problematic. And then it goes on to say, if you want to say, right, that Rabbi Shimon does agree with the Tanakhama, even in the case of the daughter or the maidservant, we could also say that we're dealing with a, a case of uh, a mistake in lineage. Maybe this is actually a lineage case um, and not actually uh, a, a case about, um, about, about money. Um, again, I think this is a little bit of a difficult answer, right? And so, but the point could be that maybe it's that like, the woman may feel better not having a maid service maid servant in the house, right? She may feel threatened by her, wasn't somebody that she hired or had a relationship with. So maybe that's why Rabbi Shimon would agree with that particular case. Then the Gemara is going to go on to explain why would this be the case. The way they describe it in the Mishnah is they use the word mikudelet. Again, we're going to see this Mishnah a little bit. That's why this Gemara is so interesting because it's sort of like on the Mishnah that we haven't actually read yet. Right when it says, what does it mean by the term of migudela that she's a grown woman, meaning that she's a shifcha migudela, she's old enough. So we would say it means she's old enough to actually run the household. My migudela, what does migudela mean? Gadelet. Maybe it actually means that the daughter or the maidservant is a respected person, like she's somebody who's well thought of. It's not that she's grown, but she's gadol. She's respected. To amrahi, and so therefore the bride may say, lo nichali de shakla mile minai. Right, I don't want to have this kind of person in my house because she will take words she hears from me. But azla nada kame shivutai, and she'll go and circulate them amongst my neighbors. In other words, you know, she may not exactly, um, she may not exactly uh, respect me or something like that. And so that's what they're sort of, you know, trying to say there. From here, the Gemara goes on to give a bunch of different cases of all different types of conditional. Uh, uh, you know, Kedushin, like he says, I'm a scholar, I, I read Torah. What exactly does that have to mean for that qualification to be met? And it's interesting that it does have certain standards. It can't just be sort of a statement up to inter- interpretation to the man. They are going to give some actual standards of what these things try to say. And so I think part of what's very interesting here is, is that, you know, obviously dating marriage was, if we could even call it dating, was very different in this time. But what we see happening here is that, you know, uh, the Gemara is allowing, and the Mishnah is basically saying, uh, and the Gemara's commentary on it, that if a woman should know what she was getting into, and if, if, if she wanted something, and then it turned out it wasn't that, 
that is not going to be a valid condition. And I want to say one last thing about that. I think this almost in a way shows the advantage to the Kedushin Nisuin system that we don't do. Right now we have both parts of the marriage ceremony are at the same time. I'm wondering, and this is kind of my question to you, do you think there's an advantage here? Because in a way it's like you do the Kedushin and it kind of gives like a little bit of a time there for you to find out if there's a mistake or something wasn't true that you thought was true. And then you can basically argue, okay, it's not valid, right? It's like it didn't happen. You don't need to get, it's just not valid. Like, I guess my question is, how long did it take for these types of cases to happen? And was there actually an advantage to the woman because of this delay between the Kedushin and the Nisuin? I hear your question. I, I think it makes sense in the context of... Um, recognizing the difference between betrothal back in the day and our engagement process nowadays, right, where both of those do have a time lead, right, to allow anything to come out in the middle. I guess the real difference is that if we were concerned about betrothal needing a get under normal circumstances, meaning a broken betrothal needs a get, unless, right, if I understand correctly, unless we've got here this kind of false pretenses, in which case it really could be that the there can be a dissolving or it's not even dissolving, right? Like it never happened. The betrothal wasn't a betrothal. Uh, yeah, I hear the advantage. Um, I think for the most part, there are advantages to not doing it in advance because of the concern of a get in the event of not false pretenses, but just somebody changed their mind. So, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a dance, I guess, between that advantage and disadvantage. Um, I want to note, right, and you're Dan, you've just mentioned this, that, you know, some of these other conditions where somebody says, like, you know, marry me on, or be, be, rather be betrothed to me on the condition that, right, and the condition is that I'm learned in Torah or that I did thus and such in the synagogue, right? And then the question then calls, you know, is really, you know, when, when do we say that this is a person really just being a liar, right? When, you know, some of the cases we saw at the beginning were potentially misunderstandings or miscommunications or or even just a misapprehension of the accuracy of what the guy is saying about himself or what liquid was in his cup or that kind of thing. But then then we come to cases that are just, you know, beginning, I guess, with some of what you've discussed here, Dana, you know, just straight out lying, which is, I think even, you know, it compounds the question, but I think also, and this is maybe just my own personal proclivity, I think these cases of like, you know, be betrothed to me, uh, you know, in order that I study Torah or on the condition that I study Torah, it, it seems to like fly in the face of the condition itself that much worse, right? Meaning the idea that I'm going to be, that the person is going to be studying Torah and is going to, but not really, and is going to lie about it you know, is it's kind of somewhat a little more perverse than if you're simply lying, not simply lying about your status of wealth or something like that. Before we get to this Mishnah that your data that you've kept mentioning here, and it's an important one, I wanted, so one last point on that. So you would think that the Gemara would follow the Mishnah, but every so often it's organized, right? So that it's, so that the salient discussion that precedes the Mishnah, and isn't that so well organized? So We've commented on this many, many times. I think here it's kind of even more profoundly so, and where, as you said, Yudina, that you really feel like you want this Mishnah before these Gemaras. Um, before I get to the Mishnah, however, we have some just beautiful Agatha here. Asara Kabim Chachma Yerdu Le'olam. Ten measures, a kav is a kind of measurement, ten measures of wisdom descended to the world. Tisha Natla Eretz Yisrael Kol Kulo. Nine of them went to the land of Israel and 
one of them went to the rest of the world. Um, it's interesting. This is an, all. This is a discussion of wisdom. The second one, I think, here is maybe even more commonly known and perhaps more understood. Jerusalem got ten, got nine measures of beauty of the ten that came down to the world, and one measure went to the rest of the world. Ten measures of wealth descended to the world, and Rome took nine, right? Think about this in the context of the Roman conquest of, you know, that was very, you know, in, as a, a backdrop, right, for the people who are talking in the Gemara and the Breitot and so on, right? Um, even even those in Bab- Babylonia are still very cognizant of Rome. kabim aniyot tisha, I'm sorry, aniyut, and here we have this contrast, right? There are 10 portions of poverty that went to the world and that came down to the world. And Bavel, Babylonia took nine and the rest took one. So you really, you really see that contrast between Rome and Bavel right there. There are nine, um, 10 portions of Gasut, um, haughtiness, arrogance descended to the world, and Elam took nine, and the rest of the world got one. Now, the Gemara goes on to say, one second, isn't Bavel, isn't Babylonia also arrogant? And there's a whole discussion and, and images from um, the verses in the prophet Zechariah. And then, um, so then Rabbi Yochanan says, he says, yes, indeed, right? There was flattery and arrogance that went to Bavel, meaning it's not just Elam, it's also to Bavel. And the Gemara goes on and says, yes, yes, there is. You know, like it came to Bavel and then it went to Elam. So the question of, you know, the, the social commentary, I guess, of this um, assessment of the world and its outstanding character traits in this way is, you know, on the one hand poetic, but they are not immune to the idea that, you know, let's let's check ourselves against the reality and isn't this something that we should pay attention to. The list continues, right? So there's 10 measures of strength and the Persians got nine and one for the rest of the world. Likewise, there's... um. Ten portions of oh, I'm sorry, I skipped one. Asarakabim kinim yerdulelam tishanat la madai. There were nine portions of lice went to Medea. Nine portions of witchcraft went to Egypt. Asarakabim nigaim yerdulelam tishanat lo chazirim. There were plagues, nine of which went to the pigs. Right now, we're not talking about um, the countries, but actually. The particular animal, um, Arabia got not nine measures of licentiousness. So Meshan, which is a place near Bavel, near Babylonia, got nine measures of brazenness. Nine measures of um, conversation went to women and one to all the rest of the world, all the rest of the world, meaning the men, um, which is, you know, again, social commentary. The Kushites took 
nine uh, measures of drunkenness and nine measures of sleep went to the slaves a rebuke to the slaves in that and then it ends right like there's no sweeping statement afterwards but i think each one of them measures its own it merits its own attention and what is it saying about each of the countries or each of the populations and so on now finally our mission and with this will close right again somebody says to a man says to a woman i i you know be betrothed to me in order that or on the condition that I am a Kohen, Vinimsa Levi, and we find out he's a Levi, Levi Vinimsa Kohen, or the reverse, Natin Vinimsa Mamzer, Mamzer Vinimsa Natin, again, status, if you're a Mamzer or if you're a Natin, Ben Ir, Nimsa Ben Krach, if you say you're a city person, but really you come from a village, Ben Krach, Vinimsa Ben Ir, vice versa, Amanacha Beti, Karov Lamerchatz, Nimsa Rachok, you say, well, on condition that my house is near the bathhouse. I feel like, what kind of statement is this? That this is going to be a condition of betrothal, but okay, let's leave it at that, right? You find out, again, that this is false, that really the person is far. Rachok v'nim sakharov, or the reverse. Al-menad sheyish lo bat o shivcha megudelet ve'ein lo. Is on the condition that he's got a grown daughter or a maidservant, but he really doesn't. O al-menad sheyish lo v'yesh lo, or the reverse. Al-menad sheyish lo banim v'yesh lo. O al-menad sheyish lo ve'ein lo, or that he has children, but he does or he doesn't, right? Whichever direction. O v'kulam af uh, even if the woman says that she intended to marry him regardless of the condition, meaning she says that this was her intent in her heart, not that she stipulated it out loud, then it doesn't matter. In all of these cases where the pretenses ended up being incorrect, whether or, whether or not they were intentional, um, it does not work. The betrothal does not take effect. And likewise, if she misled him in any of these kinds of conditions, it's not just the man, you know, put in this hot seat. If she said, oh, yes, you know, or if he, he stipulated all on these conditions for you, or she said, I will accept it on the basis of the false pretenses goes in both directions and they would not be betrothed. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rebbe Michelle Farber for hosting us on the 100 website. And until tomorrow, go and learn.